This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, the AOPA Hangouts launch in Spokane. And the FAA grounds Blue Origin after a crash. Also, tragedy at the Reno Air Races. And inexpensive EFIS is available to more owners. Also, the chute logs its first jet save. Ian, let's do some Hangar Talk. Are you ready? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, contact. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulitz. David, our guest this week, we actually have a few guests. Katie Ryder, who's a contributor for AOPA, she lives up in Alaska, used to live in Talkeetna near Denali. And she's lived there for many years, flew a Super Cub, but got to really know the operators of the Turbine Otters and and got a real affinity for the airplane, interviewed a bunch of those operators, and has put together a package for us. And you know what? She spent, not this summer, but last summer, working with NOAA on a stellar sea lion aerial survey and did that all over Alaska. So her observations are actually helping preserve the planet in some way. All right, so let's get right into it. The Hangouts, the AOPA Hangouts, they've launched in Spokane. And if you haven't been keeping up, this was the AOPA fly-in. We did those for many years all around the country. But COVID, unfortunately, like it did for a lot of events, kind of curtailed those. Now they're back and they've morphed into a a more casual setting, encouraging people just to come to the airport, pitch a tent, fewer seminars, fewer exhibitors. It's really just all about camaraderie and, and getting out to the airport for the day. Yeah, I was there, Ian, to cover it visually, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, The weather was pretty good for the most part. Some of the smoke from nearby fires affected several folks, you know, trying to come in from western parts of the state of Washington. But all in all, we had about 1,000 folks attend. 150 aircraft flew in, and about half of those camped out, and they really had a great time. They, quote-unquote, they did hang out. We had some fire pits going. We had food trucks. There were some really interesting and fun short takeoff and landing style demonstrations. I want to give a quick shout out to Hank Galpin, who let me ride along with his Travel Air 6000. But we had a little bit of a mechanical issue, so we weren't able to do the stall demo uh, during that heat. Um, I got to ride a little bit later on with Jughead Council, John Jughead Council, in a beautiful Cessna 170. We did some aerial photos of the area. It was great to meet Jughead and the other competitors. Of course, Jimmy Gist was there. He's one of our good friends, uh, wrangling the stall pilots. And it was a, a lot of fun. Hey, Ian, before we go on, kind of give a shout out to a couple of folks that I ran into on the flight line that are regular Hangar Talk listeners. Yes, yes, absolutely. 
Let's uh, give a quick shout out to Marshall Taylor from Mission Missionary Aviation Foundation and also Six Pack Arrows, Lyle Jansma. And we got a chance to catch up to both of those folks. Ian, they like listening to you. I don't know about me so much, but they do like listening to us. But um, it was great to see some folks who are our loyal Hangar Talk listeners. We had a lot of fun. They did, too. And uh, the event was really interesting. The Historic Flight Foundation Hangar is located on that airfield at Spokane. So there were uh, as a P-51 to look at, a, a B-25. It was really just a great time. And tell us where the next one's going to be. Yes, the next one will be in Tampa in a couple of weeks. I think, what, uh, first weekend in November at the old uh, Vandenberg Airport, which is now Tampa Executive. It's on the Beltway there next to the Florida Fairgrounds. And David, I think you're going, right? Yeah, so um, November 4th and 5th. And, you know, folks really like to come to the fly-ins because they're able to share some camaraderie with, with fellow pilots, but also some of the really key workshops that we have the seminars and workshops are popular at in spokane we had a a mountain flying workshop with mike vivian and of course mark baker did the uh town hall the opa pilot town hall and he updated everyone on unleaded fuel uh some initiatives that we're looking at you know working through you know regs on some things we're looking to the future on other things and it really was a great time to get to know a little bit more about what AOPA does with the You Can Fly Foundation and, and a lot of our other initiatives. So Mark had a soul, I want to say a soul, sellout crowd. It was standing room only crowd, of course. And people were enjoying what we had to say and listening and learning a lot too. So all in all, a great time. Yeah, that's great. Sounds like an awesome time. So there are going to be camping at both events. So there will be camping in Florida. I think I'd I don't know. Personally, I'd rather camp in Spokane than Florida, but I guess if you're used to Florida camping, that's great. Uh, <laughs> by all means, come and do it. It's a great airport regardless. I mean, I've been there a few times. We used to go in there for sun and fun. Uh, lots of space, really easy in and out and easy to get on the highway and close to Tampa. So if you might want to make like a long weekend of it with family or whatever, it's it's easy to do and uh, definitely a good time. All right. Okay. So moving on, uh, I want to talk about Blue Origin. They've been in the news a lot lately, of course, really for all their space tourism. They've flown lots of people, including Wally Funk, as we know. They had an accident recently. The The rocket essentially disintegrated. It happened kind of at its peak load. It's really not a good situation for them. No, but we want to emphasize right off the bat that nobody was hurt. This was an unmanned flight for Blue Origin. Yeah. And, you know, the FAA did not look kindly upon this and, and grounded Blue Origin after that crash. Ian. Like I said, it was an uncrewed flight something went wrong at about a, a little bit over a minute into the flight and they had an abort system which kicked into into gear and of course all that worked but the FAA said um, and I'm reading a little bit here from Avweb thank you Avweb for providing a little bit of update on this but FAA said in a statement that the system won't fly again until the cause of the explosion is known and I was gonna um, bring up to our, our hangar talk listeners that you know, space flight is still something that we're, we're trying to grab uh, a hold of with, you know, with airspace and investigations and things like that. And, and it kind of flew under the radar, but the FAA and the NTSB signed an agreement on who would investigate and how they would investigate commercial space mishaps. Yeah, yeah, that was really interesting that. It was a little bit of infighting there with the agencies. I think um, the FAA felt like they had some jurisdiction there because of course they've set all the rules and the regulations for commercial space and they 
But, you know, they do some accident investigations, but largely that falls to the NTSB. But FAA spent decades trying to establish these rules. And so, but of course, the NTSB says it's a form of transportation and that's our jurisdiction. And essentially, like you found, they made a handshake and they came to a resolution. Yeah. So the FAA will be the lead investigative agency for all other commercial space mishaps, but the NTSB will be the lead investigative agency for commercial space launch and re-entry mishaps that result in a fatality, serious injury, and damage to property. So the NTSB is going to take the lead. The FAA will be the lead on other mishaps that don't involve fatalities, serious injuries, damage to property, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sitting here, I'm trying to imagine what an accident would be, what a commercial spaceflight accident would be that doesn't involve property damage, loss of life, serious injury. I mean, how? what, yeah, what would that be? Like uh, some guy <laughs> hurting themselves on a wrench when they're building the rocket? What is that? Maybe a fueling mishap or something like that. I mean, you're right. Yeah, my gosh, I can't imagine. seems like every accident would be a major accident when you're talking about commercial space. I mean, you're talking about jet, you know, about rocket propulsion, not even jet propulsion. I yeah. mean, yeah, exactly. thousands and thousands of pounds of thrust, you know, and it's a, uh, there's a lot of volatile, um, you know, chemicals going, going out those nozzles in a short amount of time. So I, I do agree with you. Maybe it was just to make things look good that they, they signed a handshake. Yeah, maybe. You know, it's interesting, this accident, the Blue Origin accident, Avweb reported that the capsule, which on this flight just had test instruments, which would normally have people. It, it separated as per the protocol when there's this sort of mishap. They didn't really say what happened to the instruments, what the status of the instruments is, but you know, de facto, what would be the status of the people? Would they have survived? And But that is kind of interesting. I'd, I'd be curious to see how that turns out because it certainly looks like a fireball, but if it's separated and, and if there were people and they would have been okay, that would be a huge win and that, that would be pretty amazing. It is. It is. Uh, the anomaly occurred at about 28,000 feet in altitude as the rocket was nearing 700 miles per hour and close to max Q, which Avweb says is the point at which the vehicle is undergoing maximum aerodynamic pressure. So thank you for explaining that, Avweb. But, you know, we did all see a Blue Origin capsule at EAA AirVenture a couple of years ago, and it was hugely popular. A lot of folks stood in line to to uh, walk around that, and, and a few people got to go in it. It was really interesting. So yeah. That is that is cool stuff. It's, it's very cool. Unfortunately, from one accident to another. Reno Air Race has just happened, and we would love to be talking only about the results, which we will talk about in a minute. But unfortunately, the races were marred this year by another fatal accident, this one in the jet class. An L-29 during the gold race went down, and unfortunately, the, the pilot died, and it's a terrible, unfortunate event. Yeah, that is true, Ian. You know, a lot of folks were able to see some of that video online and and it was tragic but it, it, it also caused the races to be halted after um, rookie of the year Aaron Hogue was killed uh, several folks have speculated what might have happened we of course don't know yet but yeah what's some of the stuff that uh, you read about well the indications seem to be that you know they're they're pulling high G's going around these these course pylons and the pylons are 
really about 200 feet or so above the ground. Um, well, the pylons are not that tall, but the racers are about 50 to 200 feet above the ground and just pulling hard G's going around the, the corner. So I have heard that it might have been a loss of consciousness because of the G-forces. And, you know, that L-29 jet, that's capable of about 500 miles an hour. And if you're pulling and you're going around a, a, a corner like that, even in a little Cessna, you feel it. Right. You know, yeah, sure. multiply that by five or more yeah and so that is what i've heard now i you know obviously the jury is still out on that the ntsb and the faa are taking a look at that yeah they are and, and they will and so i actually talked to somebody yesterday who had a significant other in the race and the thought was that just looking at some of the footage from the other airplanes and looking at that that it might have been actually a wake turbulence situation oh is that right to upset the uh, the, the the line but who, who knows? They, they'll find out, though. Obviously, racing is unfortunately not without its risks. You could do a safer sort of the Red Bull strategy, you know, one pilot on a time course. But, you know, Reno has really always been special for that head-to-head -head action. And people love to see the Unlimiteds and the power and they're loud. And the Jets have been a more recent entrant. And it does bring up the issue of speed, right? They're going 500 miles an hour. I think every motorsport in the world has to look at this at a certain point the racers just get too fast and and they have to look at do they need to slow them down for safety right it'll be interesting to see if they look at that but you know there there was racing that did take place and again we talked a little bit about the weather and the smoke and the fires when we were talking about spokane the uh, fires nearby in, in the west also affected some of the practices and some of the racing at reno this year but we were able to get several races off uh, the stall drag. There was some practice for that. There was a little racing action. And it was interesting that some of these events were being were being pulled off despite some of the smoke and haze, which has affected a lot of folks on the West Coast. You know, Ian, I'm a, a East Coast pilot mainly, but I have been in the, in the West on the West Coast, um, you know, about a week ago. And also right now as we record remotely and it is significant. And, you know, the other thing is that visibility is affected hugely and things can go from VFR to IFR pretty quick. Now at the Reno air races, they're close to the ground. They're not far away from the grandstands. And so I don't think visibility is a problem once they get going. I know there really was talk about the visibility and, but some of the races did go off and Obviously, we have to talk about the accidents. They're important to the pilots and their families and the future of the races. But uh, I do want to talk about the results. Yes. Because there were some gold races that uh, that went off. They didn't do the Jet or Unlimited Gold because they were suspended. But they did do the biplane gold. And that was won by Sam Swift in his Pitts S1. Oh, right. Called Smoking Hot. Yeah. And he went around at 205 miles an hour. Oh, man. Woo. The Formula One gold race was won by Justin Meters in a... Hang on, what is this? A snowshoe SR1, I believe. I'm going to have to look that one up. Yeah, we definitely need to look that up. Now, I'm, I hate to put you on the spot. Now, how did Dreadnought do? Because we uh, we always like to, to keep a, an eye on what Dreadnought does. He was in Limitless, one at 242 miles per hour. The Sport Class Gold was won by Matthias Hay. That's in the Thunder Mustang at 333 miles per hour. T6 class, always a fan favorite because they always race so close. Chris Rushing won that one in Baron's Revenge at 240 miles per hour. 
So congrats to those pilots. And we'll see. I don't know what they're going to do, or I haven't heard what they're going to do for the jet and the unlimited classes. But my guess is they'll probably just say, what, 2022, we're just not going to have a gold winner and we'll just pick it up next year. And my guess is that's what will happen. Okay. So so whoever won last year in the other two divisions will keep the crown for another year. Keep the crown. Right. That makes sense. And we'll be right back. David, moving on. So stuff that's a little more accessible for the rest of us. Some new gear from um, UAvionics. Oh, yeah. We're both loving this. The uh, AV30, it's now certified for more airplanes. This, to me, is interesting. UAvionics, that AV30C, you can use that as an EFIS system, and it helps you either as a primary attitude indicator, directional gyro. It is so cool that, that UAvionics is now able to get that approved for more than 190 additional models of high-performance single and twin-engine aircraft. This is important to folks like me who are always looking at the bottom dollar. How much does it cost me? Because it's only about, when I say only, everything is you know relative, but $2,300 for this unit. And it only takes a few hours for a mechanic to install this. We're talking three or four hours versus 20 hours for a similar type model from Garmin and other manufacturers. So this is, I think, a feather in our cap for moving ahead with something that's digital, that you can, you know, kill a vacuum system. You don't need it anymore. You can toss that stuff out. And there's buzz on the horizon that there might be an, an autopilot control and additional ADSB support related to these units uh, coming up for certified aircraft, which is, I think, very cool. Yeah, that's right. Um, we should say I haven't been able to verify the installation numbers. I something I just read online. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Okay. But one thing that's not often talked about is the installation time. And the units themselves are, sure, they're really reasonable. Right. Although it's, Jesus, crazy to talk about three grand is reasonable. But in the scheme of things, that is. So obviously installation is more on top of that. But this person was saying that UAvionics is a lot less installation time than, than Garmin. I'll have to verify that at, uh, at a shop. Well, you know what, Ian, $2,300, and say it costs exactly that much additional to put it in. So you're looking at a little bit less than $5,000 altogether for something that has that much power uh, and gives you better control and better situational awareness. As an aircraft owner, even in the older model aircraft, it would not look terribly out of place because it's a round instrument. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the marketing, I just think is fantastic. They do such a good job showing it in a in an old panel and a legacy yeah. panel and it just it seamlessly looks just awesome yeah so um yeah so okay let's verify the uh, installation cost we'll ask carlo silliers our our uh, airplane whisperer at aopa if he knows or our avionics shop that we go to over in lancaster uh, pennsylvania but i think on the surface it's a great idea i'm glad it's available to more folks even in vintage aircraft i think people will will get a kick out of that there's more news in the avionics department besides that, though. Yeah, so we also wanted to give a nod to Avidyne with the IFT. The new version of the software has now been certified. I think the software is a free upgrade, which is really nice. It gets you some more capability. There's some features, I think, that are a little bit more. But, you know, Avidyne doesn't get enough love for the IFD system. But, you know, Avidyne from years and years and years ago has been so innovative. If you're a super tech head, you really do like the Avidyne because it's a cool system, has incredible capabilities. A lot of people do actually prefer it. And so, yeah, congrats to Avidyne. You know what? I remember when I was first taking my um, private pilot lessons back in the year 2000 and the Cirrus SR20 model had come out, 
And Avidine was the brand that was that brought the digital revolution into yes, the cockpit. Yes, that's absolutely. When, that's Definitely. when other folks were using King 155 flip flops, yeah. maybe a King 89 or 90B GPS. Yeah. But Avidine was the first real glass display. I thought it was very interesting at the time. Yeah, and the IFD is the new generation of that. That's absolutely true. David, I think this story that we're all just enamored with is that the chute, the cap system uh, on the SF-50 jet has logged its first save, and it's a phenomenal outcome. Everyone in the airplane survived. I think maybe there's some injuries, but uh, largely they came away unscathed. This happened in Florida. The pilot was going from, I think, Opalaka to Kissimmee. Unfortunately, they were right near some pretty significant weather, but they pulled the chute and landed in a marsh, and like we said, everybody walked away. So celebrating the good parts of this operation, you know, pulling the chute in the Cirrus SF-50 Vision Jet, that really did result in, in another save. You know, Cirrus has logged over 230 CAPS parachute saves so far. But the weather to me, now I have flown out of Miami Opelika Airport, and, and you probably have too, and going through the, you know, I want to call it no man's land from South Florida up through Central Florida around um, Kissimmee, which is just near um, and outside of Orlando, that is like a convergence zone. And the weather is frequently a factor in that area. Yeah. And we're not, yeah, we're not saying it was for this or not. But there were torrential downpours that were reported. Of course, we still don't know what happened to cause the pilot to pull the chute, but we could certainly celebrate the fact that there was no loss of life. And that is a pretty big airplane. I mean, that's a lot yeah. lot larger than the 22. Yeah, so you can see on uh, the FlightAware track, there was some pretty significant weather off to the west. And what's really telling, I think, and really interesting, if I can do a little bit of arm, armchair quarterbacking, is yeah. flight of course, has the speed and the altitude blocks. And you can see the last few minutes of the flight, the airplane goes from around 100 miles an hour to 250 miles an hour and then back down. It oscillates quite a bit. It's just really during the last couple of minutes. And the airplane had a really nice, pretty steady step-down descent. And in around maybe... A thousand feet, I think. Do you think it was that outflow or inflow from a nearby thunderstorm that might have made that uh, might have made that flight more erratic? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes you wonder because then down there, about a thousand feet, and um, just the last couple minutes, that sharply go up to two thousand, and that's when the speed drops to about one fifty to zero. So probably well, one one fifty to zero. That's obviously when we pulled the shoot. yeah when they pulled the shoot. Some sort of altitude deviation and then the shoot pull, yeah. And, you know, that's the thing is that uh, at least you have that as a backup. I mean, I love the idea of having that. I wish that um, whatever airplane I end up with, I wish it would have a payload for me to at some point consider put, put in a ballistic parachute system. Yeah. But certainly with a vision jet, which I want to say lands, uh, I mean, it lands definitely faster than a SR-22. SR-22 lands at about 80 miles an hour anyway, so you've got to slow it down more so than a Cessna in that kind of thing. And I think the jet is, is a little bit faster, maybe around 90. I think we've talked about it before, but I'm going to, I'm going to say it again, but you know, there's all sorts of memes and jokes about the shoot and, but you know what? People just need to get over it. It's clearly a life-saving device, just like training, just like in-flight weather, just like GPS, just like TAWS. They're all part of a package. The fact that whatever got the pilot into this circumstance is ultimately irrelevant. What matters is everybody walked away. Right. The pilot and the pilot's family are now safe. 
because of this piece of technology. And that's a win, regardless of everything else that led up to it. I think it's a win. It's a, it's a great system and absolutely should be celebrated. Absolutely. I agree with that. And more innovation helps us. We talked about situational awareness just a topic ago and more situational awareness, more tools available to us if something uh, that we're not expecting happens. And and I, I say chalk it up as another win for Cirrus. And it's OK if the, if the jet's not usable. Everyone else is. Yeah, that's absolutely right. David, OK, we want to bring on Katie and her love of this turbine otter and what it can do up there in Alaska. It's really, really phenomenal. I think you're gonna love it. This recording has been recorded in Talkeetna, Alaska, and I'm Katie Ryder. Recently, AOPA Pilot published a story on the Turbine Otter, which is a wonderful aircraft used in the Alaska range. Today's episode, we're going to talk to some of the air taxi operators who brought the Turbine Otter online for climber support and for visitors to view Denali National Park. We're going to learn about some of the early history of the aircraft that were flown in Denali National Park, evolving from the Super Cub to the 185 to the Beaver to eventually the Turbine Otter. We're going to also hear from the air taxi operators uh, that first brought it on, including K2 Aviation, as well as Talkeetna Air Taxi. Here's we're going to start off with Suzanne Rust of K2 Aviation talking about the early days of bringing Turbine Otter online. Here's Suzanne. It's been an amazing addition to our business. We approached Park Service about using the turbine otter because we had one in our floatplane operation in Anchorage that we were using on floats, not on wheels and skis. But we approached Park Service about using the turbine otter in our contracts or our, our concessions for doing glacier landings. And the initial reaction was, no, we're not going to allow that. Luckily for us, that superintendent moved on, and a new superintendent came in, Paul Anderson. Um, he thought it was a great idea, and we could take more passengers with fewer overflights over the park. And so we introduced it, I think, in 2000, 2001, and so we had the first turbine otter working in Denali National Park and landing on the glaciers. And through that, we learned that our season, instead of wrapping up in mid-July or early July, depending on the glaciers, we were able to extend to go to almost all year-round operations in most cases because the airplanes are so much beefier. They're, they're able to land when it gets a little bit rough or bumpy and safely, and they just worked brilliantly for that. Even with their large wingspans, the turbine otter have become the common workhorse for the air taxis in Talkeetna. Now, before we get too far into the turbine otter, it's kind of fun to recap some of the history of the earlier aircraft that operated in the Alaska range for initially for climbing support. Paul Roderick of Talkeetna Air Taxi recently celebrated 25 years with his company, Talkeetna Air, and over 30 years of experience in the range. Seemed like a good candidate for explaining some of that early history. Here's Paul. You know, the Alaska Range is a hard place to access. I mean, you've got, you know, big glacial rivers, basically three of them that come together in Talkeetna, and you've got big swamp lands, and then you've got, you know, lower rocky glacier moraines, some of the hardest 
country to travel in in the world and you got front range peaks that start you know basically five thousand feet high and work their way up to of course twenty thousand denali and just an expedition in itself just to get into the big mountains so the airplane was kind of looked after for expedition support into the range basically in the late 40s and by the mid 50s you know don sheldon and cliff hudson started operating the super cub which was small light if you got it stuck it was a manageable airplane to push it out of you know deep snow or unconsolidated snow or just varying snow conditions and and then there was a leap made to the Cessna 180 and and hence the 185 with a little more power and and that seemed to plateaued for a lot of years so basically if you think 60s 70s 80s and even right up to about the mid 90s it was just 185 only everybody thought well if you basically if you bring a bigger plane up there and you get them stuck it's you know it's going to be difficult to extract a plane especially if it's just a pilot and maybe a climber two or three now, mainstream media doesn't really show the photos of when things aren't going as planned, such as getting an aircraft stuck on the glacier, and oftentimes that was a real issue, especially earlier on. Joe Reichert of Denali National Park, he's been the aviation manager for the park for over 25 years, and he remembers those early days of the getting the 185s unstuck. Here's Joe. Yeah, you asked about getting stuck on the Kiltna. That's been a classic change, and I think one of the big... Um, concerns we had back when they started bringing the larger airplane in because we'd spent so much time in the 80s and 90s you know digging out 185s and pushing pushing on the struts and pulling on the wings and lifting the tails and all the things all the shenanigans you had to do to to get the 185 unstuck you you could do because of the weight of the aircraft and and people's strength once you put a 185 or an otter in in a compromised position you need more engine power you know people can't really move that aircraft in a pile of snow the beaver on skis was also a very common aircraft for getting climbers up into the range and they had wonderful attributes to fitting in a lot of gear and climbers however when they got stuck on the glacier, it was a bit more of a challenge to get them out. When the Otter came on board, one of the great things that everyone really appreciated it was how quiet they were. Here's what Joe has to say about that. The beavers are a different sound. They aren't as loud as the 185, depending on what trough the 185 has on. But then once you get over to the turbine engine, and now there's a few turbine beavers around, but the turbine engine just is overall substantially quieter than than the 185, and that made a big difference at base camp on busy days. The turbine otter really was a game changer for air taxi operators in the Alaska range, and a lot of it was the quietness of the engine, and another big part was its capabilities. Paul Roderick goes into a little more details about that engine. Once Texas turbines started bolting on the Garrett engine, that became like the kind of go-to airplane because it had you know 900 plus horsepower, powered by the, the Garrett 331-10, and that was the initial conversion. Once we discovered that by the mid-2000s, it was like, okay, this is an amazing platform. Not only is it just basically not wondering whether you're going to make it off a glacier, but in deep snow, it could be to your waist or chest or deeper, and that, that plane would power you through it. You know, it's it would get stuck once in a while, but manageable. You could dig it out. 
you know, you didn't never pushed on it, but once you freed the skis and dug it out, it could make its way pretty much out of any snow condition we could throw at it. Certainly, the changes of the times and the development of the tourism industry in Tulkey now also contributed to the amount of passengers needing rides into the range, and the Otter was a great aircraft for those air taxis to fit many passengers in one load. And it was also less of uh, aircraft flying overhead with a greater number of passengers. Here's Joe. The real transition was when, you know, it used to all be climber revenue or a majority of climber revenue in that main due time period. And then, you know, as the advent of the cruise ship industry and the tourism industry in, in Talkeetna exploded, that translated into more scenics and more, more flights, not quite as many landings, I would say. While some of the smaller operators in Talkeetna, such as Sheldon Air Service and N2 Alaska, still operate with Cessna 185s and Sheldon Air Service has a beaver on skis, the atmosphere of the turbine otter kind of represents a little bit like a mini airline. Suzanne Rust of K2 Aviation explains a little bit of this phenomena. When we think of air travel, we think of flying in an airline. And small airplanes in the range, especially the turbine otter, provide a completely unique perspective that's unexpected for guests. They're always astonished and, and awed by what they're able to see out the windows. Now, one of the challenges visitors may have of coming to Talkeetna and having there be a cloud cover. So one of the operators, Talkeetna Air Taxi, worked out establishing a single-engine IFR program with the FAA. Here's Paul Roderick on this the FAA and they were the first IFR, you know, it's basically single engine IFR turbine powered airplane that was, you know, an otter. And so we work with the FAA on complying with the IFR, you know, platform where basically you got to have enough battery power and, and backup instruments that if you did have a, you know, basically a power failure, you could, you know, the battery power that you had could supply enough and basically has to supply 150% of the power. So we did a bunch of tests with the FAA. It took us a few years to basically establish that it was going to work, was safe and legal. And we did some test flying and even just testing of the avionics to make sure everything was going to work. And, and it did. And we continue that program to this day. So that was basically um, in the late, maybe 2008 or nine. we started IFR Ops and, and continue it to this day. Some years we use it more than others. Some years we you know, don't use a lot, but it's a, it's a great backup tool, you know? So basically if you get stuck up on top or the weather, you know, rolls in down lower on the glaciers, you're not sealed out. We could get up on top of the weather, call center, get a clearance back in the Telkina. And if we had to shoot an approach back in. So basically it leaves you more options, a safety net. And basically, you know, you keep your IFR skills refreshed in case, in case you need them. And one of the more interesting stories of the turbine otter in the area is the fact that it was able to transport Icelandic ponies an hour and a half flight across the Alaska range to an area called Big River. This was done by uh, Talkeen Air Taxi, and Paul Roderick tells a little more about that story. Well, it's pretty rare to transport live animals, but we, our plan was was to take some Icelandic ponies who were, they were young, they were maybe, I don't know, seven months old, maybe somewhere in that vicinity. And they were going to drug them and put them in a gunny sack and we're going to take them in the otter that way. But they were such nice, docile, really friendly animals. And we have, a, I have a couple horses and are 
and our kids um, ride around Telkeen in. And so we, I felt comfortable around horses, and we got to know the horses. They basically spent a day or two in, in Telkeen in our parking lot, and we got them comfortable around airplanes in that time and got them up to the airplanes. We made a ramp up into the Otter, got, you know, did some trial runs up in, and they, yeah, seemed to be. I mean, they were really docile, friendly, easygoing animals. So then we loaded them up in the plane, put some hay in there, and decided, well, let's go out west. And because um, basically we had to cross the Alaska Range and go to the what was called the Big River area. And there's a some people who were homesteading out there. We're starting a little horse farm out there. So we flew them out, and they were actually some of the more mellow, well-behaved passengers I had all year. So they just grazed, and we occasionally <laughs> look out the window and graze on a little more hay. Basically, we're yeah, really comfortable passengers. Wow. What was it like um, loading them into the airplane? Well, it took a little while to get them in the plane, because uh, we were putting them up the ramp, down the ramp, up the ramp, down the ramp, and then getting them used to basically getting into a you know, confined area. They, were, they trailered well, which was good. So we, they could go in and out of trailers. So we were just like, let's just take it to the next level and we'll build a ramp, trailer them up into the airplane. And yeah, it worked out really well. And they were quite comfortable in there. They barely moved the whole flight. It's basically eight hay. Wow. And then how about when uh, you landed, that strip out there is just a dirt strip, not that long. but Yeah, and it's like a maybe 1,800-foot gravel runway. And the landing was uneventful. They were a little hesitant to get out. One of them just jumped out. (laughs) The first one went down the ramp, and the second one, I think once it saw that it was alone in the airplane, it just leapt out of the plane, and then that was that. And they they continued to live out there to stay. Okay, so I actually went up there for my seaplane rating, and we took a 185 up onto the mountain, onto the glacier, and there are some otters coming in, and they talk about in the package there how it's quieter, and yeah, it's true, it's amazing. You would think with the turbine, it roars through the mountains and echoes off all the canyons, but really the 185 is seems like it's just as loud. So um, it's an amazing tool. So now when you were up in the mountains and landed on the glaciers, you still have to be super cognizant of the direction of the wind and whether you're in the eddy on the backside of that uh, mountain or not. I did some flying yesterday around Mount Hood in Oregon, and we were experiencing some of the same situation because there are glaciers year-round, even here in the lower 48. But I don't think that uh, that the glacier fields that we were looking at, uh, you were able to land an otter on. It was they were just too. It wasn't quite long enough. Yeah, no, I don't think so. All right, hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash talk. You can also look for us on YouTube where appropriate and wherever you get your podcasts. All right, see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.